Okay, I'm here with Eric Velhagen in front of his magnificent booth here at IlexCon. And I'd like to, where can listeners uh, learn more about your work? Do you have an online site? I do not have an online site. I, I'm very prehistoric. I just have a website and an email, and that is about it. Oh, you have a website, so... And that's uh, a challenge enough, electronically. Mm-hmm. No, do you have, does it have a, uh, an address? It does. <laughs> Let me think. It's, uh, the website is, I guess just Google Eric Velhagen is the best way to say it. Sounds like the best policy. I think most people are going to do that anyway uh, when we're done here. Uh, when did you get your start uh, in the illustration field? I got uh, introduced by Frank Rosetta in high school, went to the Colorado Institute of Art and graduated in 83, and then realized right away that making a living in 83 doing fantasy art was going to be very difficult. So I just went into the advertising, uh, doing, I was a freelance illustrator in Portland, Oregon for a number of years, and in Albuquerque for many more years, and did it for 15, 20 years, and just really didn't like it. It wasn't challenging. It wasn't what I really wanted to do. Got really burnt out. Then went into construction and built homes and did remodeling for about 12 years. And my body said, okay, you're getting too old for that. So I thought, well, what do I really want to do? And so I went back and said, I really want to do fantasy art. That's what I wanted to do. And so I entered uh, some artwork into Spectrum 17, and I got in, and, which was fantastic. It was a shock, and since then, doors have been opening, and I have no complaints whatsoever. Now, in, now within the genre, what are some of your first uh, published credits? Um, Spectrum would be my first. Uh, I'm only in the unpublished so far in Spectrum. I'm in Spectrum 17, 18, and 19 that's supposed to be coming out um, in the beginning of January of 2012. I got in my first assignment from Wizards of the Coast. So I'm a, a newbie in fantasy art, and uh, it's been great. It's kind of funny. I don't really know what people are talking about in this genre. I mean, it's like I've been living on another planet, so they talk about all these games, and it's like, okay, that's kind of cool, but what are you talking about? So luckily, uh, Spectrum has been great. The books that they have given me the exposure to the people that can use me, and if I had any advice, get into Spectrum and doors will start opening, because that's, that's what's happened to me. One of the things that strikes me about your work is how you know, it, it has a beautiful, rough-hewn look to it in space. You know, you, you're, you're doing something that I'm often very timid of doing, and that is being more painterly in the execution. And I think that's it's, it's really refreshing to see that. I, we see a lot of uber polish in the in the market today, and to see stuff that has a much more of an edge to it in that way is really interesting. What, who are some of your artistic influences? First one, obviously, Frank Rosetta. And in college, I had a workshop with Bob Peake. And Bob Peake is most famous known for his movie posters that he did, uh, Apocalypse Now, the Excalibur ones. He did like 100 movie posters. But what was so neat about the exposure that I got from him was that you can suggest detail 
through ideas. I think I said that right. Minimize detail through suggestions is another way of putting it. And what I found that works for me, and that's what it boils down to, is every artist has to find what works for them. And what worked for me was when I started painting in detail, my paintings just died. They just had this slow, agonizing death. And I, I could not figure out how to recover from that artistically as far as how I applied the medium. And when I broke it down, the, the best strokes when I applied the paint was right at the beginning because you're thinking you're going to cover those, but they have so much more life and vitality in them because you don't really care about them. And I thought, that's what I have to kind of grasp and hold on to. So to keep the, the paint fresh, I keep it as loose as I can and make the viewer kind of complete the painting for me. And so I'm painting suggestions. This is what I'm suggesting you're looking at and relying upon the viewer's intelligence and their impression of what they're saying. I think that's what speaks to me about it, the work is that you can you can have a dialogue with your paintings. People, you know, I have to bring my own collective experience to, to when looking at your work to fill in any gaps that my I have to let my imagination fill in those details as you're pointing out. That's what I think is really fresh and interesting about your work. You know, it's very immediate in that way. I was uh, introduced to another artist by the name of Robert Heindel and uh, did some beautiful paintings of ballet. It's probably what he got most famous for. And he left, he would paint on the backside of uh, linen, and he would leave large areas, or not necessarily large, but the exposed linen, and not paint on them. And he referred to it that he was leaving undone areas for the viewer to finish the painting. And I thought, how smart is that? <laughs> and so I've, I'm sure I've subconsciously or maybe consciously on some pieces done that. Just let the viewer finish the work for me. I was having a conversation with my friend, uh, fellow illustrator Beth Trott, last night. And it, it kind of feeds into the whole cinematic notion of closure. In which, uh, well, think of the movie Psycho. The shower scene. The, the viewer never actually sees the knife land. Yeah, the, the psycho, yeah, our, our, our murderer, we never see the knife strike. We see the hand, we see a flash of steel, we hear music that tells us when the strike is, help, is falling. But the viewer is the one who decides where the knife is hitting, how deep it's going, you know, when she actually died. We are, we, we are the murderers in that, scene, in that scene in the film, when we think about it. And I think your paintings invite that for the viewer. We can become your collaborators, if you will, you know, your conspirators, which is it's very interesting. So It makes it easier for me. <laughs> yeah, they're real quick. It goes so fast. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess that's all I can say about that. Um, I don't... It's great that what suggestions can do uh, and leaving the unknowns unknown and let the viewer kind of finish it for you. Uh, implied violence or implied horror, implied... Anything implied is just that. It's implied. How do you like this deep conversation so far? <laughs> uh, you make, you're making very good sense. You're, like you say, the, the implications of, your, of the detail you're leaving out 
You know, you're allowing the viewer to step into it and help you complete the work. Just as you were saying, one of your, uh, was it Mendel you said was doing that? Uh, Robert Heindel. Heiden, Heiden, pardon me. Yeah. Um, Now, what are you uh, currently working on? Uh, I'm. Uh, I just got another uh, piece from Wizards of the Coast. Uh, very cool image. I'm looking forward to painting it. And then after that, I have a commission to do. And then after that, some museum work uh, for us. Uh, which I'm kind of up in arms about. I'm not sure what I'm doing, if I'm going to accept that or not. But if I do, it'll be a lot of fun. It'll be a lot of fun. Well, I have to say, you're doing something with your work that I, I, I'm only, I'm, I'm rather timid of doing, and that is, you know, being as painterly, you know, pulling, being painterly. I'm often, like so many of us, and I'm, I imagine many of our listeners can probably relate to this, we're afraid to leave something out. We're afraid to not polish things to the nines, to have everything blended and sculpted and every detail rendered and all over the canvas, like some kind of a light nightmare, you know, of work to do. And uh, I appreciate what you're doing, and it's uh, some really stunning work, sir. Thank you very much for sharing. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Welcome to episode 122 of the Ninja Mountain Podcast, the podcast for artists and by artists. Ninja Mountain is a loose collective of fantasy sci-fi artists who like to talk about the art and business of freelance illustration. Ninja Mountain is a proud member of the Visual Artist Podcast Network. On the forum this Today we have Kieran Yanner. Uh, Kieran Yanner at kieranyanner.com. Patrick McAvoy. Uh, Patrick McAvoy at megaflowgraphics.com. And I'm sorry I don't have an awesome echo like Kieran. Our, <laughs> our resident female, Silkar Miles. Fuck you. <laughs> at coreblimey.com. <laughs> <laughs> As an inside joke that no one, no one has gotten. At the- That's okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, our, our listeners just, tune in. Let's not explain that. Let's our just leave it that way. Yeah, let's leave that a mystery. Our listeners <laughs> tune in for uh, for inside jokes and things that only we laugh at. That's 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 the Ninja Mountain tradition. <laughs> and I'm Jeremy McHugh, and I can be found at McHughStudios.com. And oh my God, I we 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 still live. We, we still, still live. It was a it was a busy summer for everyone. We oh have stories God. to tell. Oh man, I've been so busy. I you know I it's hard to it's hard to herd you cats. <laughs> <laughs> we've all just been like to the wind. No kidding. But we've all been busy, uh, and so I uh, have uh, Drew and Eric who couldn't make it on today. But uh, oh, sorry. Holy. Yeah. That's uh, Kieran's. His dog Cerberus guards the gates to hell. <laughs> I can't. What's going on? We can hear all three of its heads barking at us. That's and they terrific. do it all at once, hence the really <laughs> thunderous yeah. report. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, maybe uh, are we going to. I'd like we... to open up with what. Uh, I'd like to learn more about how things went with this Kickstarter for World War Kaiju. Oh, that's right. How yes. Did that all last... come? How did you do it? How did it all? I, I'm always curious. I've never really followed a Kickstarter from beginning to end and see how it all 
begins. Yeah, I it was the first time for me too, and uh, it really went great. I, I guess the last time we were on, I was just uh, at the end of the show. I gave a little uh, shout out about the Kickstarter was about to begin, and we did a a full sixty day Kickstarter. We thought we'd give it plenty of time, and we were looking for fifteen thousand um, dollars as a minimum, and we ended up with. Uh, uh, close to twenty four thousand, so we did pretty well. Uh, it was put together by um, Kat Roca, who's the uh, business uh, end of our of our little team, Kaiju. Uh, it was uh, me and Kat and her husband Josh Finney, who is the writer, and uh, we put together. Everything you need for a Kickstarter and spent a lot of work and a lot of time laying the groundwork. We figured out ahead of time, you know, how much it would cost to, uh, how much we, how much money we needed and then how much money it would cost to, um, create all the incentives for people, which include things like getting the book that we're going to be making or getting posters or uh, shot glasses or original art or other things like that that were all, uh, many, kind of really, I thought, creative and interesting incentives. Uh, so we figured out all of our costs and then figured, okay, we need to get to you know, X amount of money to do what we want and then uh, more money to do individual stretch goals. And uh, I think by planning it all out ahead of time, we, we really minimized our possible um, problems, our possible exposure to losing money, which some people have done in Kickstarter. Um, and then uh, Kat was also really good at wrangling interviews for us. I think we did we did over a dozen uh, podcast interviews with the group, and probably an equal number of uh, print uh, uh, stories were done about us. Um, you know, in the comic book online press uh, and fandom. So so we got a lot of people really talking about us, which was fun. And we ended up with over five hundred people kicking in money and so that that represents over 500 books pre-sold uh plus lots of other incentives and things so that's that's been a fantastic uh fantastic journey for us so we'll we'll be doing uh a graphic novel of world war kaiju that's going to be 80 pages uh and it should be out uh early next year i'm already working on art i think i've finished something like 34 Three pages already, and you're gonna do the rest of those pages all by the end of the year. Yeah, well, that's what the Kickstarter was about. I'm able to take time off from my other work and just uh, work on nothing but, well, not nothing but, but about three quarters of my time on World War Kaiju for a couple of months. So that you're be really fast, man. You're like way <laughs> fast. <laughs> Way fast. <laughs> and it shows in my quality. <laughs> but it, it should be fun. Lots of giant monsters, lots of uh, lots of period stuff from the 40s and 50s and 60s. Uh, just everything I like and a lot of tongue-in-cheek humor along with giant monster battles. Uh it, it, there's going to be some, you know, '60s super spy stuff involved too. Aliens, a whole, 
a whole uh, two pages of uh, doing an homage to Roger Dean covers uh, as as a flashback to to an alien planet. I mean, it's it's just filled with great stuff. So I'm really excited. And Kickstarter couldn't have gone better. You know, I've heard some people will get to the end and realize that they're hosed because they hadn't counted on enough money for shipping or their incentives ended up costing more than they thought they would or things like that. But I'm, I'm happy that we really uh, did plan it all out in advance and it came, came out great. And we really uh, also got a lot of fans online. It was so cool. You know, the neat thing about Kickstarter, I think the thing that blew my mind more than anything was that, you know, you start out with people that you know, people who've been following you maybe on Facebook or DeviantArt, you know, and then friends and acquaintances. And you figure, oh, you know, a lot of those are going to uh, donate to your project they're you know they're going to just want to help you out and get the incentives but then when you start getting hundreds of people that you've never heard of who just like the idea and start talking about you online and mentioning you know talking you up on on blogs and uh uh you know di- different venues and they'll they'll just say hey i saw this world war kaiju thing everybody ought to give them money you know you see that from people who you know, you don't know from Adam, and they're just doing it because they like your project. It's a very cool feeling. Hey, how much would you say, how serendipitous was it with regards to having World War Kaiju being promoted around you know, throughout the summer at the same time as a film like Pacific Rim? Ah, the not, marketplace. It was not serendipitous at all. It was on purpose. Aha! <laughs> I, kind of, I, I was curious about that myself, so maybe... Uh, how, well, you must have been following the a uh, lot of the, the scuttlebutt about the film's production, and you guys saw some opportunities there. Or, well, yeah, we figured um, since it it covers a little bit of the same territory. Obviously, it's a totally different story. That one's more about the giant robots, and uh, you know, it's it's a really grim and gritty kind of story when you get down to it. And ours is a little more tongue in cheek, and it's more about the monsters. But, you know, it has some overlap. So we figured there was something going on there. And we've been working on World War Kaiju off and on for about two years, you know, just designing creatures and, uh, you know, doing the storyline and uh, starting pages and everything. But at some point earlier in the year, we realized, hey, Pacific Rim's coming out this summer. We're never going to have more opportunity for people to actually even know what a kaiju is. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in the U.S. at least. Yeah, they didn't even know what that word was a year ago. And here was Pacific Rim telling everyone for us. So, uh, yeah, we said, it's time. It's time to do it. Fish or cut bait. And so we decided to. Uh, which one is it? Fish, I guess. That's a stupid metaphor. <laughs> hey, where did you guys seek, uh, or, or did you seek guidance on running a successful Kickstarter? Because it seems like they're, like, for instance, under, uh, under budgeting is a potential pitfall. What were some of the other potential pitfalls of operating a Kickstarter? Well, uh, the people from Kickstarter actually want you to do a very realistic assessment of what your pitfalls are. And you, uh, you may have noticed at the bottom of everybody's uh, Kickstarter page, there's a whole uh, section about risk and that is a requirement. And so we had to look into what our risks were, you know, how how sure were we we could actually do the project and uh, stay within budget. And uh, again, luckily, 
uh, Kat uh, Roca, who's uh, really the brains of our operation. <laughs> you know, Josh and me are just there to look pretty. Uh, Kat uh, really thought a lot of this out ahead of time, and she's you know she's got a, a real business head. Well, she's a you know trained business major type person so she was able to sort of take the reins and she did most of the research and everything and just kind of filled us in so if I sound like I know what I'm talking about it's mostly because she did all the research and, <laughs> and let me know what was happening uh, so I can't take any credit for, for being smart so she but, was more of the Hannibal Smith and you're more like what B.A. Baracus really yeah yeah that's that's true or maybe maybe I'm more like face <laughs> <laughs> Because uh, I'm the good-looking one. I, I've never pitied a fool in my life. So uh, we uh, we did, uh, yeah, we did a, a lot of homework, laid the groundwork well. Uh, we, uh, I think, I, I can't stress highly enough that getting lots and lots of online attention uh, was key, key to getting us over the hump. Uh, you know, having. Really, most most of the major um, uh, publicity we got was from podcasts, various science fiction and comics related podcasts, and a couple of kaiju related podcasts. So that that if you're if you're planning a Kickstarter, I think if you don't do that segment of it and try to get at least you know a dozen really good podcasts and articles written about you you're you're going to be spinning your wheels yeah plus at that point you're just kind of appealing to the kickstarter community and that's you know you're preaching to the choir there they're not your customer base you're, you're going exactly after the... yeah did you guys oh. meet oh, i'm sorry go ahead go ahead now or, or if you've already got a going concern you know some sort like say uh i know the uh uh a uh, YouTube show that I watch a lot is the Comic Book Girl 19 show. I don't know if any of you watch it. It's wonderful. And so when she wanted to do a Kickstarter to do, you know, to add more to her uh, her show, she was adding more uh, uh, production values and doing extra things. You know, she already obviously had tens of thousands of listeners. So if you've got that built in, obviously you don't need to worry about this other stuff quite so much. But for most of us who don't already have a a, uh, a gigantic uh, fan base, uh, getting getting the the interviews and blogs on your side is really, really important. No, did you and by, guys, the, by, oh. the way, by the way, that was a stealth recommendation. Everybody should <laughs> go to YouTube and uh, watch the Comic Book Girl 19 show. It's a silly name, and she is really fun and funny and super smart. And she talks about comics and movies and Game of Thrones in, in depth, in super depth. Like when uh, Prometheus uh, came out, uh, she was uh, she did like three different shows on uh, uh on it just just because of everyone who was um you know criticizing all the details in it so you know she does really smart uh clever stuff plus she's got great taste in comics so uh yeah i i'd have to recommend that to everyone while i'm here did uh did you guys have run into any kind of um resistance regarding not having a completed project before seeking funding i know some 
some there's been some differing uh, camps on the use of Kickstarter. For instance, there, some use it for strictly for seed money to get an unrealized project off the ground. Others to get a realized project or just to get a finished product to market. I mean, I've heard differing opinions on it. And would you guys uh, think one way or the other regarding that? Well, no. In our situation, it was very upfront that we would not be able to do the project without money. And most comic book projects are like that. They do what we did. They create some sample pages. You know, obviously, they tell everyone uh, the gist of the story. They'll show production art and finished pages and say, here's what I've got so far. If you give me X amount of money, I'll create this book with X amount of pages. You'll get it, and then I'll take it to market. So it, it with something as labor-intensive as a graphic novel, you you really have to say this money is for creating it and producing it. It's not just for... Uh, printing it's it's for you know somebody to make a living while they're doing all of this labor intensive stuff yeah it was interesting because I remember watching in um, what was it in January February we had Monty Cook running a very successful Kickstarter campaign and that seemed to come together very well I, I guess it was, I guess maybe it was simpler for him because he has that background a fan base I think similarly, there was a Brahms art book that did very well on Kickstarter and Larry Elmore's. Yeah, people with a built-in fan base are obviously going to have a leg up. And someone like Monty Cook that uh, people want to see his, you know, they want to see the latest game from him. You know, they're going to all go on there and give some money so they can get the game and they're excited. So something like that has a little bit of a built-in advantage for a famous artist like Brahm, you know, because all their fans are going to go there. With someone like us or, you know, a lot of the listeners listening if they're interested in Kickstarter, it's... Not it's an opportunity to get money, but it's also an opportunity to begin to build that fan base. That if you don't have it already, uh, so we you know we found that now we have had thousands of people talking about us and you know uh, interested. Even if they didn't put money in, there's thousands of people now who know that the book's coming out and may be interested in getting it, uh, even if they didn't give money ahead of time to pre-buy the book. So uh, it's, it's a different world. You know, you've basically got the two different types of people doing a Kickstarter. One are people who are already known, who want to get money for a new project and their fan base is going to pitch in. And then there's people like us, unknown, getting money, but also creating a fan base. <laughs> I just said the whole thing uh, that I said before over again, but that's okay. You're supposed to do that when you're when you're writing. You start with your <laughs> you, you start with what you're going to say, then you say it, and then you repeat what you'd said. <laughs> my English teacher drilled that into me in high school. <laughs> my uh, my little boy just basically exploded in my arms. That's what you get when you have a full bottle and <laughs> oh, it you was, can hear him. <laughs> It was bottle explosion and not butt explosion, though, so that's okay. <laughs> it was a bottle was explosion. Worried. Yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> I was worried there for a minute. Bottle explosion, heck. <laughs> Do that all day. <laughs> oh, you can hear him now. There He's he is. Just swaying in daddy's arms, but now he decided, you know what? I'm going to protest by puking in your arms. You told us he was smart. He is. He's a smart little guy. He's, he's alert as anything. 
It's kind of disconcerting. I thought he would just be a little potato until he comes of age. <laughs> and he can be reasoned you with. Wish. You know. Well, yeah. the moral of my story is everybody who didn't give uh, any uh, money or didn't know about World War Kaiju, it, uh, it isn't too late. Go to worldwarkaiju.com and you can learn all about the book and uh, you can follow the production as we work on it and you can see what it's all about and you can even still pre-order it. Uh, we're setting up a, a system where you can uh, pre-order the book. Doesn't even though the Kickstarter's ended, we will still take your money because we're just that nice. Uh, so, I yeah, go to <laughs> worldwarkaiju.com. You know, I noticed you didn't have like this, uh, this dramatic story. You know, like Art Pact had this kind of dramatic story where watching things, it looks like it's falling apart. You think, oh, my God, this is not going to work. It's not going to happen. And then in the 11th hour, quite literally, an influx of uh, donations come in. I am so project. glad that didn't happen because I could not have handled the excitement. <laughs> <laughs> it, in fact, a lot of Kickstarters go that way. People, they hold off a lot on, on donating immediately because they're hoping other people will do it for them. And then towards the end when people realize maybe maybe they, they better get in on that, then, then there's suddenly a big rush in the last few days. Uh, that was what happened with the Birds of Lore project that was kickstarted, which I did some art for. It was really snailing along, and then the last day they just really closed that gap. Yeah, uh, uh, ours ours had a similar trajectory, except we had already a few weeks earlier gotten over our our minimum goal, so we didn't have that nail-biting. But our last three days were, gosh, about $4,000. Wow. <laughs> so, so people with, with really the art, jumped on. With the Art Pact one, too, um, I think they got a lot more prizes and giveaways for, for donators. Um, the, about halfway through, a lot of people gave them stuff that they could give away, so people were more likely to make a larger donation if they were getting something. So oh, that's I think, neat. I think yeah. that may have helped them out in the second half of fundraising as well. It's, it's funny because I gave them a piece of art, and when I got the shipping address for the person who ended up donating and getting it, I realized that she could practically have picked it up from my house if I still <laughs> lived in Sweden. <laughs> They've been like, well, we've been like 45 minutes away, so probably not. But <laughs> Based on what you've experienced and witnessed, you know, I'm, I'm curious to know, what do you think of this as a, as a future publishing model where book publishers, game publishers pretty much seek the audience through Kickstarter versus uh, traditional publishing routes? Oh, I'm really, I'm really high on it. I mean, not, not to disparage all publishers or anything but uh boy publishers suck and when <laughs> you know <laughs> no not not really but the 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 thing is that when you're doing it this way you have the opportunity if you're so inclined not everyone is uh, not everyone wants to self-publish anything but now you do have the opportunity to self-publish you can uh, 
You can fund it yourself. You can get the money up front yourself. You don't have to give money to a you know a third party who really wasn't involved in the creative process. And people people don't care generally unless they're they're like you know Marvel Comics fanboys or something. But most people don't care where their uh, their entertainment is coming from. You know, they they only care that it's something they like and they're getting it. They aren't wedded to a particular publisher or distributor. So when you get the opportunity like the, like Kickstarter gives you to make something on your own, go directly to your possible readership or viewership or whatever and, you know, get the money directly from them, give them the product that they want. You're really narrow casting to this potentially, you know, reason, pretty small group of people. But because you're getting all the profits, you can make it work. Um, it doesn't have to be a ton of money. It can be a relatively tiny amount that a publisher wouldn't even, you know, look twice at something that, you know, made that little amount of money possibly you know publisher might say oh you know $25,000 I don't care about that but for an individual artist that's a pretty good amount of money uh, the internet you, allows you to is, at least the, the internet and the, the machine that surrounds it I mean you can definitely find your audience much more readily than ever before I mean even if you if mm-hmm. you if you have a say you have a website and you only have maybe 2,500 viewers if those 2,500 viewers are comfortable subscribing to your content for a dollar a month. You know, I mean, that's yeah. uh, there's your audience. Doesn't have there. to be a big audience. There you go. It, it can be, uh, it can be reasonably small. And then you go through traditional publishing whenever you get an opportunity. You know, that's always there too. But uh, when you have a personal project or something that you want to be in charge of. Uh, for for whatever reason, either creatively or because you think the money works better as just an individual or small group, uh, y- you've got that opportunity now. You can you can uh, change the entire paradigm. It has changed already. It's it's totally different. You see lots of people doing what we're doing. You know, graphic novels uh, and comics uh, succeeding every day on Kickstarter. And it's it's wonderful because you can say, maybe I've only got, you know, like we did, you know, 500 and some odd people pre-buying the uh, graphic novel. And that many sales wouldn't even get you into the major comic book distributor, Diamond. Uh, but for a small project, that's fantastic, that many free pre-sales. That has allowed us to fund... Uh, you know, doing it for a living for a couple of months, plus printing the actual book and uh, the possibility of, you know, lots more sales later on. So, yeah, I, I don't see it. There's no downside. It's really going well. And it, and it doesn't seem like a fa- fad or anything that's going to fade out um, because it's just a new way to micro-market yourself exactly to the fans that you want to get to. 
Yeah, I think the only potential um, pitfall as a freelance illustrator who wants to work on these types of projects, for instance, you know, where I've seen it was it uh, I've seen some folks complaining about the potential of uh, you know, for instance, a lot more royalty projects being offered or projects where it's a lot more back end money contingent on a Kickstarter success. And I'm I'm thinking to some degree, I think it would be helpful to some of these nascent publishers to really talk to the the subcontracting community and find out what rates are really acceptable to them versus, well, you know, I understand it's about $100 a page, so I'll budget for that from a Kickstarter. And you end up with, you know, it's more of the same. You have a lot of underpaid artists and ones who really, you know, are not getting the artwork that they want for this Kickstarter, for this project. I think talking with the artists more uh, and the creators might be a pretty mm -hmm. uh, valuable tool for them if they want to have a successful project. Does that make yeah, sense? I mean it it does and and you know if 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 they if they figure that they're only going to be able to get a certain budget for art um via Kickstarter, then I think that they would be much better advised to use that budget to get a smaller number of really excellent illustrations than a larger number of middle of the road illustrations. Um, I mean, quality really does outweigh quantity. If people are looking on the internet, they're not going to, you know, go to the Amazon look inside feature and be all, oh, this doesn't have art on every page. I'm not going to buy it. Um, but they might go on there and be like, oh, the art I see is not very good. So I don't want to, to buy it. Or you just I mean, let the, I, I noticed... I mean... Or, or you let the backers decide the level, of, you know, the the level of the art budget. They're gonna, I mean, yeah, you know, if if you talk, if you talk to, if if I were a publisher who wanted to create, a, get a get get a Kickstarter project going, and rather new to it, and I wanted to say, well, what I, rather than just me spitballing what I think an artist would like to make off a project, or or worse yet, basing it off of what the industry has already supported. You know, some of those rates are pretty archaic, yeah. And it's sort of a the the question mark is I why don't why don't I speak to creative professionals, find out what an adequate budget for this book would be for the various for the artwork that I want for it, and take it from there rather than just suppose I know what a good page rate is and then budget for that and then just create another run of the mill eh, kind of average low to low budget artwork kind of product you know i i think there's a lot more potential when you when you talk to a potential fan base well i would like to back this but i think you need more money for your art because i i want to see these artists in that book that sort of yeah. thing mm -hmm. and a lot of a lot of art directors and i know it's not their fault they're probably they, they're not the ones in charge of the budget but lately i've been noticing i get a lot of very apologetic emails that are that's they come right out and in the body of the email asking if I'd like to work for them, they apologize for their rates and they say, I know this probably isn't what you're normally asking, but uh, here's what we can offer. And, and thinking, if you know that you're part of the problem, if you know that your rates are not acceptable, then why are you offering them to artists still? Why are you not coming up with a different model um, I, I write back sometimes if the rate's like sort of close to something I'd accept and I say, well, 
you know, I can't work for that, but here's some suggestions. I'll say, like, if you want to have art on this every page, I can offer you a pretty good deal on a double-page border that'll go all around the pages. You can put it on every page except for the ones with full-page illustrations. Um, I can read your book. I can incorporate lots of little details from it into the border. And there will be a lot for people to discover as they read through the book and recognize the stuff in the border. And, you know, I can I can do that for you. Um, and, and then maybe a few illustrations, but it's going to have to be a bit of a higher rate. And, you know, I make suggestions like that. And I think people would do well to listen to that sort of suggestion because if you know you're part of the problem, if you know your rates are too low, you need to be doing something to improve them, not apologizing to artists you're trying to recruit. Yeah, that's not Absolutely. much of a selling point, is it? No, <laughs> let me it for, isn't. Let me just apologize in advance. We're going to, if, if you decide to take part of this project, you will be underpaid and possibly paid late. Moving forward. <laughs> well, I've, never, I know, I've never had anybody say, and possibly paid late. But I have had a couple of, you know, well, unfortunately, our budget is only blah blah you know a lot lower than I would want usually in the realm of 100 to 150 a page but you know they say say something like we're really hoping to get some art for this I'm all well I can definitely work with you but it's not going to be you know unfortunately much as I like your project if I did it for 150 a page I wouldn't even break even like I, I, I would, I would have some serious issues with paying rent that month, and that's kind of not really on for me, you know, because I, I, the idea of homelessness is quite uh, unpleasant. <laughs> yeah. I was just, you know, I was just thinking about this the other day. We, we, I imagine some of you are aware of that. Uh, World of Warcraft has commissioned its final set of card assignments, and. That was yeah, a, I was surprised. That was one that. of the highest paying gigs in tabletop games, and that was that was pretty much the, you know, I I have to. It's a, I think it's the same conundrum for those who rely upon um, publishers like uh, like Wizards of the Coast. And I think if since they are easily the second highest paying um, market in our little um, in our little industry as we call it, and I rather I have to worry for those artists who. We're enjoying the the closest thing to salad days our <laughs> our market has known, and I They're have. Prob wouldn't they probably put something out to replace that though? I mean, I think, from what I heard, I thought that that ended not because it couldn't be afforded anymore, because it's kind of done. Well, I think I, I don't know what's coming to replace that. But I'm I'm just saying that I know that there are a lot of artists who and many I'm sure there are many artists who skewed their portfolios to meet that oh, particular right. uh, yeah. product line, and there are, you know I'm sure that there are artists who relied upon getting that one or two cards per month if they were lucky, and make some decent money for it. And oh I, yeah, and the next thing might not. Yeah, be and the all same. of a sudden, bang! You know we've. Your your number one employer is now gone, and I've I mean I've already I mean I. I I've been a big proponent of not allowing any one client more than 20% of my income. You know, you don't necessarily, such as my income is, um, it's, it's, it's very, it can be pretty, oh, heck, even just working in, in a single market, a single industry, 
yeah. uh, as a freelancer is a pretty uh, can be a pretty dangerous. You know, I've I've never ever given that any consideration about percentage. It's just if they want to give me work, I'll I, take it. I, I think, don't I don't artificially. No, uh, no, no, no. I'm I'm saying that's like a that was just like a yeah, pluck a number out of the air. Don't allow any one publisher or or market to determine all of your income because when that market mm-hmm. goes away, is it seems to Tends inevitably to do. do you're you're kind of in the wind. Mm-hmm. You know, or when it slows down, what do you where does it where do you make up? the difference in your cash flow where do you you know it, it, you know it's it just seems like it's a pretty scary i think it's a ma- relatively scary time for those who are maybe unprepared for that that sea mm-hmm. change in their mm-hmm. yeah i mean you, you never and a lot of the time you don't know when it's going to happen either you, you you don't generally get a whole lot of notice so you can't be all okay well i've got four more sets to do for this company and then they're discontinuing the product so that gives me a few months i will look for <laughs> you know you don't usually get that opportunity to start putting your portfolio out to new markets it's usually just one day you're told oh and by the way this will be the last that yeah. we're doing on this yeah, so that's that's 90% of the time or or the best maybe oh hey we've got uh yeah next next month for stopping e- even that isn't very much time or a lot of the time you hear about it oh and by the way we will never be able to pay you for that last set of work you did because we just went bankrupt uh, <laughs> usually yeah, without yeah, the laughter yeah. but that happens yeah too. they usually don't say ha ha but sometimes they do <laughs> yeah so my my fingers crossed for that stable of artists who are relying pretty heavily on that client i mean that's got yeah. to be yeah, tough, I'm, re- tough I'm really time. hoping i'm hoping for them that most of them had other irons in the fire or that something else comes along from the same company and they keep on a lot of the same artists that wouldn't be too surprising if they did because oh, that would you be know wonderful. Like even even within even within the same company, there often tends to be a bit of a house style. I mean, yes, each product set will have its own look, but the looks may not be so disparate that the same artists couldn't cross over. Like, yeah, like but... yeah, you know, like a lot, especially in the fantasy and sci-fi markets, you get a lot of. Do you do you think though that a game product line like uh, World of Warcraft had a pretty distinctive art direction? I have no idea. I've never seen it in my life. Oh well, yeah. I, I, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, yeah there's going to be like this this generation of uh, fantasy artists who've been art directed to do this this giant bulky armor from uh, World of Warcraft, and you know it's going to take them a while to get that out of their system. All yeah. that. I mean, this game has been around for a few. I mean, I worked on the first wave back in oh god, what year was that? Like oh five, oh four, oh five. And was so, it that know, early? I don't know. I, I think I first think worked on it. Going for about eight years. Wow! I think I first worked on like in '07. I did. I, I was working on it pretty steadily until I took that Marvel gig, and then I kind of mm-hmm. dropped out. So but, you got guys though who are coming out of college, you know, with who had some, you know, the serious illustration chops, or at least enough to get them work on the card line, and yeah. then bang! All of a sudden, you know. I think I think probably in most cases, if you can draw. Bulky armor, you can draw a normal armor. Excuse me, I have to take this. Okay. Yeah, yeah, oh, but, yeah. but to, to, to rebut her point, since she's not here, I'll, I'll just say Sokar's wrong about everything, always. Sure, sure. And uh, I guess that's all I really need to say. 
Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I can see her point that uh, if a, a skilled illustrator could definitely could change oh, their styles, yeah. and that, that's not what I'm getting at. I'm saying that you may be working in a given style ex- quite heavily for years, and all of a sudden yeah. you're not entirely sure what the broader marketplace is after. Yeah, yeah, and, and your your whole portfolio is, you know, for instance, the bulky armor and the. Uh, you know, really bulky characters and and thing, you know, all that strange stuff that's in World of Warcraft, and that's all you've been doing, and that's all that's in your portfolio, yeah. or not all, but it's all of your really oh. high end stuff, probably. Look what happened to Frank Frazetta? Frank Frazetta, he was an Al, he was Al Cap's ghost artist for years, and then right. when, he, when he when that dried up, and that was his that was his income. He did he he handled some freelance work for book covers on the side, but that was his, his the bulk of his income was coming from Andy Cap. Or Al Capper, I'm sorry. Al. And when that dried up, um, the comics industry had moved on considerably from yeah. his, from the work that he was doing. And I mean, granted, Frazetta could have handled any style that they threw at him. However, it was not it was what was in his portfolio at that time. That was what yeah, he but had yeah. Done. When you hear about that that little area he had between being making a lot of money and uh, had, as a ghost artist, and then being super successful as a cover artist, he did have a really uh, up in the air oh, yeah. uh, bit of time there where, yeah. yeah, he was going around to different comic book companies with his own portfolio and just finding, oh, wait a minute, this doesn't work anymore. So, yeah, I'm sure yeah, a lot of people are going to find that with the end of the Warcraft cards. But, but still, you, know, mm-hmm. you know what we should do? I, I hate to um, stop this... Uh, conversation right in the middle but we should go over to kieran and ask kieran what he's been up to because he's sure. been doing some amazingly interesting stuff with with his giant three-headed dog and yeah just sitting this is sitting there in the background guarding his studio living in the mauve hell where it's all echoey i wonder if kieran's even still here he might have moved on he might be feeding that giant three-headed dog he might have been fed to the giant three-headed this dog. This is entirely possible. Well, hopefully Hi, he'll... Sorry, I'm, I'm just um, helping Corwin uh, <laughs> with his painting at the moment. So, No problem. So tell us about your new project. It's, it's coffee, but it's also art, and it's real interesting. Yeah. Well, so the space is... It's kind of a mix, mix of a space. Um, uh in the back area um, is where the espresso bar is going to be, and the front area is for tables and also set up for uh, drafting tables and easels. So it's like Starbucks for illustrators. Um, so you can come in during the day and set up um, to paint so you can get out of your studio. Um, uh, the, the space is filled with you know, reference material, so we'll have a small library. We have armor and weapons and... Um, uh, different, you know, pieces of, like, different uh, chrome objects and just things that people can use for reference that you'd be able to check out. Um, um, I want to move there. <laughs> but, Me too. Um, but it's, um, yeah, so that's, that's, that's sort of the, the gist of it is it's basically, you know, Starbucks for, for illustrators. It's kind of um, uh, when John Shinhetti, um hosted his... Uh, uh, illustrator salon here. Um, uh, it, it, uh, that add coffee and you know drawn out during the day, pretty much. So it's 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 set up. It hopefully set up to be similar to you know coffee houses in England and France in the 1800s, where 
artists would come in and hang out and talk about things and, and discuss ideas and um, look at work and but geared towards more um, fantasy science fiction um, stuff like that not towards um, traditional um, you know more like um, uh, traditional contemporary work um, and and things like that but geared towards more the gaming side of stuff um, and then Sorry, sorry, I was just on the phone. Could you catch me up just quickly? I'm sorry. Oh, you're fine. Uh, we're just talking about the space um, um, in Seattle that, that we've got. Um, so it's a combination. It's basically Starbucks for illustrators. Um, awesome. So you can come in and, and sit down and use a drafting table or one of the easels to work during the day and have coffee. Uh, and then there's a bunch of um, material here that you can check out for reference um, to use. Um, whether it's one of the books from the library or um, uh, if you need to use um, some weaponry or um, some other object or something like that that's in the catalog. Um, and then, what, what, What's the lighting situation? Have you got um, freestanding well, lights or is it going to use the, the, the lights, uh, light of the space? Or? Uh, we do have um, lights set up for the easels and there'll be lights for the drafting tables. Uh, but if you need more, hold on. Uh, sorry, there's just ladders going up in the background. Um, <laughs> uh, but if you if you want um, daylight, we have um, how tall is the ceiling? Fifteen. So the windows in the front are fifteen feet. Really, fifteen? <laughs> But it's, uh, wow. The window is about 15 feet, so you have a lot of natural light, and it's also because it's Seattle, it's diffuse light um, uh, come through. So you could set up near the near the front of the space um, if you need more daylight. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll have lighting um, um, that people can use for 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 their setup. I mean, it's you know, it's it's not going to be like perfect ideal north facing sky oh, yeah, or but, anything like that. But it sounds but, like there's a lot of good 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 lighting situation there. That's yeah, neat. I mean, yeah. Um, when you say um, that you're going to uh, rent out weapons as reference material, I, I assume that you mean uh, stage weapons? Well, uh, yeah, well, I mean, some you, of the swords I have be, are actually sharp. Because you could be liable if... I oh, mean, that's could, a... Yeah. yeah, like if you lend if you lend out to somebody an actual sword with a blade that can cut, I don't yeah. know what the liability would be if they chop off somebody's head with it. But I well, am suspecting that there may be some liability. So that you is should something, yeah, probably should be careful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sue Happy, the United States. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe just maybe just dull down the the blades a little bit, and you'll be fine. Yeah, make sure it's there. Yeah. Or that's like, actually or like a really for, good point. For anything, for anything that's deadly, maybe just like have it behind glass and be like, yeah. okay, if you want to use this sword as reference, uh, yeah. you, you can commission a model to stand with it maybe, or you can shut up. Sorry, yeah. I meant, that was like, I was talking to the girl, not to you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so Karen has giant three-headed dogs and you have seagulls attacking. Are they, are they eating out your liver? <laughs> Oh, it's, it's, this, it's this one freaking gull. I named it Loudenstein because whenever it's eaten all, whenever it's eaten all the food out of the bird feeder, it just stands there and it screams at me till I feed it. And I don't know if it can see that I'm busy right now, 
but I don't think it can because it's staring at me expectantly right now, trying to get my attention, flapping its wings a little bit. Oh, seagulls are thieving little bastards. I remember witnessing once when I was working at a day camp, we took a day trip out to the ocean, and there was mm -hmm. one kid standing there. He bought two hot dogs. He turns to, to eat one, and a <laughs> seagull came down, snatched the hot dog out of the bun, and flew off. That would be a goal. That's a goal. Well, I've, I've been I've been being nice to this one for the last few months because um, it and its mate were having some serious reproductive problems, mainly with either crows or teenagers smashing up and destroying their eggs. So I was being nice to them because I felt sorry for them. And then I noticed that they actually had some successful eggs. So I was being nice to them because they were feeding young. And now they just they just run roughshod all over me. <laughs> I should never have been nice to them. I swear, though, I, I kind of have a soft spot for them now because I watched their little gulls. I literally watched them grow up from conception to first flight, as in I actually watched their parents having sex. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of have a soft spot for these two little mini gulls now. So I sort of feel like I have to be nice to their parents and not throw stuff at them when they come for a snack. But I could really do without being woken up at 6 a.m. with brop, 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 on my balcony. <laughs> uh, sounds cute, though. So uh, going back to uh, Kieran, which... Uh, oh, sorry uh, about I, that. I, that's oh, yeah. okay. Everyone wants to know about your birds, Sokar. You know that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Kieran, so uh, we, we dived into what the place is, but uh, uh, let's give our listeners some details, like what, what it's called, where it is, when it's opening, all that good stuff. Uh, so it's kind of a – it's not a very creative name. It's called um, the Atelier Coffee Company. Uh, so it's essentially the, uh, a like coffee company. Um, yeah, let me say, it's no Starbucks, let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, no, yeah. yeah. <laughs> How the hell do they get Starbucks? Uh, probably from uh, that uh, novel, the Moby Dick. Yeah. You don't think it could? You don't think that the uh, the company uh, founder was a, was a closet uh, Battlestar Galactica fan? Could be. No. 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 Bears beat <laughs> Battlestar Galactica. What does um, that mean? Where does that come from? I don't know, but it's going to be their new slogan, I'll bet. <laughs> yeah, so they, they were going to call it Quag or Starbucks. They ended up with Starbucks, and the rest is history. You know, somebody defaced the Wikipedia entry for Quag. They wrote something rude about Quag and Ishmael getting it on. Like something really offensive. I'm not a Wikipedia editor. You don't think they were perhaps just uh, maybe revealing a subtext? No, no, no. They, the they weren't, no, no. They weren't. They weren't talking about a subtext. They just they put like some really gross like anti anti gay slur there, and uh, you know when you're reading it, you're kind of skimming, and then you and you suddenly you kind of go past it, and then you're like, wait, what did I just read? That might have been from the uh, the new editions forward by Orson Scott Card. Oh, I heard about <laughs> him. I've I've never read his, I've never read his books. They look kind of crappy, but wow, he sounds like a 
absolute garbage human being. He sounds well, the, like. I I think the worst part is that his his books really aren't crappy. His books are well written and exciting and fun, and uh, quite often talk about uh, the virtues of tolerance. And yet. <laughs> and yet there is him so that's the really annoying part if his books sucked or his books were you know all about uh, uh, hating people who are different than you then you'd say oh okay well that's him and I can avoid them maybe but he had a really good editor that could be <laughs> I, I don't know I'm really I'm actually glad that I haven't read his books now because like if Isaac Asimov said that I'd be so upset because in high school, I was so obsessed with Isaac Asimov. I read everything he'd written. Mm. So if he had been the one who was outed as saying all this gross stuff, I'd have been so disappointed and sad. Well, that really Very opened true. up the whole debate of separating art and artist, didn't it? To separate well, the creator from his creation. You know, to, can know, the, can a creation be enjoyed on the level that, you know, knowing... Only, af only after the creator's dead. <laughs> because while he's alive you can still enjoying his art may mean contributing to his personal wealth uh, I mean that so put you, the filmmakers in a pretty tough position too and I know so you wait until he dies and then you can enjoy his stuff well, and make movies out of it there was a uh, I remember listening to an interview in which a cartoonist had to back out of a project associated with Russell Scott Card merely be, really because of the controversy and this artist was a rather private person didn't want to have that connection and then have to answer to a lot of questions regarding this um, that's got to be pretty tough because I mean he's, he had some yeah. source material from and he's, I understand him to be a very good writer, but it sounds like on the personal level, he's really not doing much for his own marketing. No, he he isn't, and you know, you know a, a lot of the time, she, um, I just totally lost my train of thought. Someone else talk, please. Hey, so uh, we got the uh, Atelier uh, Cafe uh, in Seattle. So where exactly is it, and when is it opening? Sorry? <laughs> so where is it, and when is it opening? I'm multitasking. Um, uh, so it's, it uh, it's really is kind of open now. Um, we're just not um, – we just don't have a lineup of lectures or uh, anything. Um, it's, so the, the cafe part, it's going to take a while because we have to deal with the city. Um, we've come into some hurdles as far as we need a dishwasher because now dishwashers are, you know, a, a mainstay of uh, restaurants in Seattle, supposedly, with code, which adds another $3,000 to... Well, uh, 3000 oh, With commercial equipment, yeah, it's, it's really expensive. Well, I'll uh, tell you, I can get behind that idea because you know, my father was a, a food service director at a hospital. Yeah, and he would he would argue against the management saying that some of the highest paid people in the kitchen need to be the dishwashers because if you don't have a <laughs> you don't have a uh, a good uh, you know a good worker at that you could end up with foodborne disease so quickly. Well, I think yeah. referring to a dishwashing machine. Or yeah. wait, are you talking about? Yeah, a yeah well, someone has yeah. to operate that machine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, so you know. normally you have a three compartment sink, and that was the standard for really any city. Um, to be up with code, um, you have uh, you know hot water, sanitizer, and um, a rinse kind of thing, um, or you, you have two other chemicals. Uh, but um, that's not good enough supposedly now. 
now you need um, a dishwasher uh, to, to go in. Um, uh, and, you know, just things like that, like a grease trap, even though we won't actually be selling, uh, we'll be selling um, food, but it'll be pre-made. But they still require you to have a grease trap because you're switching over to uh, a restaurant and, um, you know, a small one is about 800 to $1,000. But see, just stuff like that just kind of adds up. Um, and, you know, so we're like, well, we weren't thinking about that because that didn't make sense to us. And wow. we, we had a space in Austin, Texas, which follows different code to Seattle, Washington. Um, so anyway, so, so as far as the espresso goes, uh, we have no clue. Um, it's oh. kind of the city allows us to open that section and do the, the, the change of use. Um, but um, we're, we're almost done with finishing touches on the, the front of the space. We just need to seal the floor. Um, we, already, we already hosted the um, uh, Seattle Illustrator Salon here uh, about a month ago. Um, and um, I'm, I'm now talking to artists um, to set up uh, lectures, at least for 2014. And then I'll actually start to backtrack into, into 2013. Um, and you know, do some short, short run lectures and things like that. Um, uh, so we'll also have uh, life drawing here as well as a, as a mainstay. It'll be um, when we get the curtain system up, we'll, we'll have nude uh, life drawing sessions at night. But during the day, um, uh, we'll have uh, people come in to pose while um, you know people can come in and buy coffee, and there'll be someone actually standing up uh, under a set of lights. Um, for a, um, artists to you know sit down and draw for an hour, hour and a half, or something like that. Um, so yeah, just lots of different things kind of all going on, um, you know. And then if one thing fails, we hopefully can shift focus onto another thing. Um, is also the idea as well, being flexible mm -hmm. enough to um, not go bankrupt um, <laughs> is the key to success to me. Yeah. Well, I've, so we I've just, got I've got one word for you on on bridging the gap on funding, Kickstarter. Well, yeah, unless unless well, see, I guess uh, Kickstarter doesn't do shares or whatever. If you did something where it had shares in the company, I guess you could kind of do something. Like that. Yeah, but you you can you can do things like uh, you know giving away X amount of cups of coffee, or not giving away, but using as incentives, you know, a coffee, or you know if you're charging for spaces. Uh, to draw, you know, X amount of time there, or uh, if you're charging for um, uh, lectures, again, yeah, say th three or four lectures, yeah, yeah, all of these could be good oh, incentives. Yeah. That would be interesting. Oh, okay. huh. That could be an interesting. Christ, shut up. Sorry, an ad is playing on my computer. I can't oh, find it. Oh, I wondered what that other person was. Okay. But okay, I found hey, it. Shut up. So Karen was just telling me what a great idea I had. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so so yeah. So um, the other thing we want to do too is have a annual uh, art competition. Um, uh, we thought would be a really cool thing to have. So either having a um, starting off with you know a small cash prize and seeing how it goes, um, you know, and as time goes on, um, increase it. Or have it where, uh, if it's if it's a digital art contest, you know maybe software or uh, uh, Cintiq or something like that that gets given away. 
Um, uh, and then uh, it'll alternate between, uh, each month will alternate between uh, single artist to have their work shown and then the next month will be a group showing. Uh, so sort of themed. Um, Sounds awesome. So like April next year we'll be uh, doing St. George and the Dragon uh, uh, because uh, St. George's Day is in April uh, and we're actually located in Georgetown. So <laughs> kind of want to play off all of that. But yeah. Well, that sounds like an incredible project. I wasn't kidding. I wish I lived up there. I'd be yeah, me frequenting. Too. Yeah, well, it'd be cool. Yeah, it'd be cool to have everyone just hanging out in space during the day and working and stuff. I'm trying to think who else is local, but I don't know if I want to just go shouting out. Hey, these people live there too, and these people, and these. Pe uh, I don't know if that's. Uh... <laughs> well, I know, I know. Greg, Greg is in um, uh, Portland, and then Todd and um, Brom are uh, in Seattle, um, and then we're across the street from Julie's Julie Barrow's studio, Crab Jab. Um, um, so there's, and then there's, you have all the, the computer game industry up here as well. Yeah, that's um, a, just a hotbed of this, of the style of art here. Yeah, and that's, that's why I thought it would work. You know, no one else is doing anything like that in the area, and I thought, um, we'll see how it goes, I guess. Maybe you'll start a trend. Yeah. Sorry. Maybe you'll start a trend. Oh, yeah, maybe, yeah. Or maybe you could start a fight club. Maybe I need to <laughs> that would be. Can you imagine a bunch of artists just, f you know, yeah. duking it out? The the the, fir the first rule of atelier is nobody talks about atelier. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm pretty sure instantly you'll find that Greg Match has just rules the the fight club. He just rules it. So uh, I'm I'm planning on uh, going up there for the Emerald City Comic Con hmm. uh, in March. So I'll definitely make a point of. Coming well, by and seeing your place. If you're interested in doing a lecture or um, running, running a seminar too, that's oh. you know, something you could think about as well. I would love to do that. I uh, haven't uh, done one of those for a couple of years, but I would love to do that. That's great. There yeah, well, let's talk about it. Wonderful. Yeah. Business deals. Business deal has been done right here on... Uh, on Ninja Mountain Live. You heard it, folks. You see how that was done, folks? Yeah, that was very smooth. Now, that's networking. That's what we're talking about. Very close network. Bam! Yeah, but... <laughs> networking, bitch. Have I you been watching do... Breaking Bad? <laughs> yeah, what, what gave you that idea? <laughs> you know, I've come to the thing where I would like to do more shows, but also me, I just, you know... And, that will be uh, quite a while. It will be a while before my son is tra more travel ready. You know, we had a great time at Gen Con, and uh, that was uh, he, he. It was amazing how well my little guy actually did travel because you know he was in the car with us for a good. <laughs> it was a good you know 17 hours or more of driving, and we did. Of course, we broke it up over two days. But uh, you know, getting into the show was pretty. It was pretty cool. Um, it's a pity you couldn't come here, uh, you guys. Yeah. Yeah. It looked fun. It was a good time, uh, although I was in the main all hall. All I've been seeing all summer is people posting on Facebook about all the conventions they went to and stuff. I'm just full of sour grapes right now. Oh, I saw your great post this morning. Everybody <laughs> shut up about conventions. Was that to <laughs> I, I don't think I phrased it quite that harshly. I think you said people... don't even say Joseph Conrad. 
That's how bad. That's how against <laughs> the word of con you were. Oh, you saw it too. Oh, yeah. yeah, I, I, I bet you wouldn't even that. want like homonyms like Wrath of Khan. You didn't want any of that. You want nothing. Yeah, I'm, I'm very anti. No, in fact, I, I'm just jealous because I can't go to any. In fact, um, it's funny. Karen mentioned Crab Jab Studios. Um, my art is going to be there next month. Three pieces of it, but I'm not. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I've got um, I've got three pieces of art in the building on a golden age show starting September 14th, and there's also going to be Michael Haig and what's his name, Terlitzi and Echo Chernik and I don't know a bunch of people that are also in it. I was only paying attention really to Michael Haig because he's so awesome, and I can't believe I'm in the same show as him. But <laughs> yeah, anybody who's in Seattle should go next month and buy my art. There you go. Yeah. Good plan. Good plan. Yeah. Okay. Or if not, buy it. Just look at it and be astounded by how awesome it is. You're not familiar yeah. with Tony Didalitzi? Oh, I, I, I don't know how to pronounce his name because a lot of people pronounce their names weird in the United States. Mm-hmm. Like, I've seen people whose last name was Schiavo and they pronounce Skyvo. And, and stuff, so I never know how to pronounce any Americans' names because they always change it. But I am familiar with his art, yes. Oh, good. All right. Oh, you scare <laughs> me for a second there. I'm familiar Actually, with his art, but I, <laughs> I don't know him. Wanna, I never... Sorry, what? I was going to say, if you want to put in a plug for Crab Jab Studio, um, I guess it's uh, crabjabstudio.com, but with a, a K instead of a C. Yeah, and they have an awesome logo with a crab with a boxing glove that's taking a jab at you. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, they are they are really nice, really very nice, accommodating people. My um my artwork got stuck in customs twice, and they were very nice about letting me know that had happened. <laughs> and it was it was FedEx's fault in the end. They had not answered my questions about what I had to fill out adequately twice. <laughs> so, it's good to know yeah. that they're so bad at their job. Yeah, I phoned specifically and I said, you know, I'm shipping some art for a show to the United States and I want to know what customs forms I need to fill out for work that has not been sold but might be sold while it's there. And the guy says, oh, okay, I'll just email the necessary documents to you and just print them out and put in your information. And then it turned out there were three other forms that he didn't give me. Oh, God. That was a little bit um, irritating. And it was a good thing that I shipped out my work good and early and didn't cut it too fine, or that could have been kind of hair-raising for mm. everybody involved. Yeah. Good advice uh, all around there, actually. So, good. I'm glad it, glad it worked out. Hooray. Yeah. Yeah, you should always always um, phone ahead, and hopefully you'll get somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. Maybe ask if you can just speak to a supervisor straight off, because, you know, you never know how much just sort of minimum wage bottom of the heap person answering the phone actually knows about customs. So you might want to just 
or you might want to call the U.S. customs people directly. I don't know how you'd call them, but <laughs> I tried calling FedEx and did not get the right info, so uh, watch for that if you're shipping stuff internationally. <laughs> it's, they, seem to, they seem to add more forms every year. Like, I used to only have to fill out a waybill, and now there's a commercial invoice that always has to be filled out, and then for stuff that isn't a product that's been sold, there's three other forms you got to fill out. It's very, um, it's very complex. <laughs> I guess so, we have. Uh, Sorry, go on. Oh, oh no, I, I was going to uh, say just uh, be sure to send the information for that along to uh, our uh, maestro Jeremy, so he can put it in the show notes for the for the show that you're going to be in. There. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, so send that along, and people can look at it in the show notes. It's amazing how often I have to go hunting. <laughs> so <laughs> I said about something it. about this, and I now have to go out and onto the net and try to find what they were talking about. Well, we, I think we gave it to you pretty good this time. <laughs> um. Oh, I was going to say something else right there. Oh, yeah. This is actually the first time I've been in a show for a while because. A lot of gallery owners get discouraged from wanting me to be in their shows because once they find out, I, I won't come. And 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 uh, it's very nice of the the crabjab people to give me this opportunity when I'm not gonna be there. I'm not gonna talk to their guests. So I'm very appreciative of this. Good. Yeah. That's neat. I. I did post to um, to Facebook earlier just to say that we are recording now. And I want to give a shout-out to uh, my friend and fellow I met at Gen Con, Darren E. Canton. Uh, folks who liked this post were Jan Pospisil. I, I am so desperately hoping I actually pronounced that correctly. It's supposed to be pronounced like Popsicle. So you should just really? say Jan. No, I'm just saying that. So, just, just, so Jan Popsicle, huh? Okay, all right. Yeah, Jan, Jan Popsicle. That's what his name is. That's really what his name is. So everybody should call him that. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. I'm sure he'll love that. Yeah. Uh, Chantel <laughs> yeah, Fournier. You're not, you're not messing yeah, with when, you. when he moves to America, yes, it'll be Jan Popsicle. So, <laughs> so, so Jan, my advice is don't move to America. People will mispronounce <laughs> your name every five feet. Yep. Chantel Fournier and Scott Harshbarger. I'm glad oh, you guys are. That's neat. How meta is that? Where I I posted about the show, they liked it on Facebook, and now they get a mention. On the show. On the show that we're very show that we are recording. That's incredible. Yeah. And then people will listen to this and go back to Facebook that's to right. find to find that post. And you got all like, you got to do is go look up Jeremy McHugh. It's like Facebook. the circle of life. That's right. Except that's right. less music. <laughs> I'm also I'm also working on a new project which I've decided not to use Kickstarter for, um, for the reasons that a I have a small fan base and not a lot of time or money to do a lot of promotion, and b it's going to take me a long time to complete because I also have a lot of other work to do. But I've begun work on a project called Mr. Gnarly Pouch Doesn't Like You, which is going to be an <laughs> art book. Uh, for every page, there's a person, place, or thing that Mr. Gnarly Pouch does not like. And there's going to be an illustration of that thing he doesn't like and why he doesn't like it. I love it. That sounds so beautiful. Wow. Oh, man. And I... I'm going to open it up. 
quite soon for anybody who would like to uh, send me a picture and sign a release form allowing me to use their likeness. And they can be disliked in the book, but it has to be a picture of them. You cannot send your annoying neighbor. It has to be you. <laughs> I, I can just imagine a notebook just filled with scribbled out names for this book. How did, how did you come, settle upon Mr. Gnarly Pants? Gnarly Pouch. Pouch. Um, Pardon me. Pouch. Gnarly oh, see, pouch. Pants was on the list. Gnarly Pants was on the list. That's what it is. Well, I was coming up with names that sounded really a little bit gross. A name that a really crusty, irritable, trollish old man would have. You know, the kind of person who, if he had the internet, which he probably doesn't, would be on Facebook all the time, disagreeing with people just for the sake of disagreeing. Like arguing with everybody and picking holes and being unpleasant. You know, the sort of person that when you're walking down the street, you feel their disapproving eyes on you and you wonder why they're looking at you like that. And this book will be the opportunity for people to see why that old man is looking at you like that. And it's not going to be the reasons you expect. <laughs> like, um, I've done one illustration so far for it, which I wanted to be um, a really special one because it's going to be for right in the middle of the book. And he doesn't, the first thing he's disliked is a manhole. And he doesn't like the manhole because it has two holes in it, like a pair of nostrils. And when he looks at it, all he can think of is a big, horrible beast being under there. And that's just the tip of his nose. And then, so I drew like a pretty street scene. And then underneath that, I drew this monster swimming its way up to the surface. And then I let people on Facebook give me suggestions of bugs to draw, and I put all these bugs into the background, too. So it was kind of a collaborative effort already. Wait a minute. You're crowdsourcing. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm, I'm bleeding people. Well, I wanted to see if there was a way that I could, in fact, collaborate with fans and fellow artists without being exploitative. You, you know, fail. How did I fail? I don't know. I mean, I figured the problem with a lot of these things that people tout as collaborations is that they expect other people to do the work but not get anything in, um, in compensation for that. Like, um, there's one where I'm not going to name names, but it was one of those contests that was on DeviantArt where, um, you know, the person who was responsible for it said that... He wanted to collaborate with his fans, but in fact, you know, everybody was benefiting financially except for the fans, and the fans were the ones doing the bulk of the hard work. And that seemed like kind of the way, I, the exact way I don't want to collaborate, but at the same time, it would be nice to do a project which has input from people so, you know, they'll always be able to say, hey, I was part of that. So I figured the way I could do that was... Um, asking people for suggestions or permission to use their, their their facial likeness. And then I do all the work. So the extent of their collaboration, like at the very most, would be taking a digital image and sending it to me. And then I do all the drawing and I do all the financing. I'm, I mean, I'm paying for this myself. Um, and then I put it out there. And hopefully make something back from it, but 
um, you know, everybody, everybody who's not getting paid is also not doing any work. <laughs> well, uh, guys, I hate to say this, but I need to get uh, running soon. So maybe we could do a little wrap up unless anyone has anything they absolutely need to say still. Not no. me. I'm I'm settling into the whole uh, full time daddy slash artist. Pretty okay. Uh, That's right. I'm doing okay with that. He's a. Uh, it's the hardest part. Is I'm, I'm probably going to start getting up really early in the morning because I've 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 started taking on some storyboarding jobs, and that's a uh, right. In addition to what I'm doing in some digital game work, so it's 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 a lot of hustle on my end right now. Maybe a lot of hustle, but um. Oh. But it's good. I'm liking it. I'm liking it. And I, I do want to take one moment just to, to shout out and give a thanks to the guys over at Sidebar Nation because I've been listening to their podcast repeatedly during a lot of uh, a lot of late nights working. So I once again I should probably thank Swain, Adrian, and and uh, Dwight for a really awesome program. Yeah, that is a great show. I like it too. Awesome and stuff. If you folks are not familiar with anybody who's not familiar with one of our uh, our uh, brother podcasts. It, go check them out, Sidebar Nation. Yeah. Awesome interviews. Yes, they're uh, smart and funny and uh, very informative. Who was that that mentioned us a few days ago? Um, I remember. Oh, it was a, a blog. Uh, did a did yeah, a roundup of uh, things and was very very nice about us. Oh, I didn't see uh, that. I always like when people do that. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh, as opposed to when people are not nice to us. Actually, no one's ever been not nice to us, which is really neat. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know. I, th I think somebody was once not nice to me. I think somebody <laughs> once put, like, I like Ninja Mountain podcast, but so Carl Miles is annoying or something. I don't remember. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to post that. I was just in a bad mood. Oh, was, oh a, bu a bunch of people were kind enough to point that out to me that some, somebody found me annoying. So uh, oh. that was very sweet of those people who saw fit to point that out. I, I would probably have gone my whole life without knowing I managed to irritate somebody. Yeah, but oh. you, you know, it, nine times out of ten, if people mention mention our personalities or whatever they'll they'll point you out as being their favorite parts so don't don't feel too bad oh yeah oh, I, I, most I folks don't. don't even know i'm on the show that is they far <laughs> that's far from the worst thing anybody's ever said about me on the internet somebody once posted that i was their nemesis and i had no idea who this person even was wow. <laughs> they plot your ruination on some lonely rooftop I, I I found it a little disturbing that some complete stranger could hold me in such vile and 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 um, vicious contempt. But then I thought probably they were exaggerating, and they probably don't think about me that much at all. Yeah, they probably didn't really know what nemesis meant. They, they yeah, I mean, nemesis, 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 nemesis is a pretty serious word. You know, nemesis is. Yeah. As they say on the <laughs> maybe they thought it meant minor annoyance. <laughs> yeah, a person who's whoever anyone who uses the word nemesis must have like a mustache that they just twirl. I wish I had a mustache. I just like if I was a man, I would have a mustache. Like sometimes I draw a mustache on myself with um with eye mascara. You know, I did get brown mascara that matches my hair, and I draw it on my upper lip. Like really, kind of subtly, so it looks like a 
mustache that's halfway grown in and I look at myself and I'm like wow I would be such a hot guy like I'm an okay woman <laughs> if I was a guy I would get all the ass <laughs> everyone would bend over for me men and women alike yeah. it would well be there's so awesome. there's no way to argue with that uh and on that note <laughs> oh sorry I forgot we're still recording want to want to play us out there Jeremy Oh, Jeremy's gone. We've lost him. He's probably uh, absolutely dumbstruck. Probably feeding his uh, his child something, some food or. Sorry to disappoint you guys. The uh, my studio uh, boss basically called to me. Ah, so we were just saying, hey, Jeremy, play us out. Give us uh, <laughs> give us an outro. Sure. Well, I'd like to thank you guys for joining us once again. If you want to learn more about the show, head over to ninjamountain.org. and. Um, I am Jeremy McHugh, McHughStudios.com. Well, this is Patrick McAvoy, and why don't you go over to WorldWarKaiju.com and see what I'm up to. <laughs> I'm Sokar Miles at GorBlimey.com. <laughs> I actually said it that time. There I you didn't go. say F-U. Well done. Where's Kieran? And, and Kieran. I'm, I'm keeper, here. Uh, keeper of Cerberus. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, Kieran Yanner at, at kieranyanner.com, and I guess you can also go to ateliercoffeecompany.com. Actually, is it ateliercoffee.com? One of those. Ateliercoffee.com probably gets you there. All right. Yeah. And here's my. this is my little guy who is now six months old, which means I know I have a pretty firm grip on how long it's been since I've had a full night's sleep. Six months. <laughs> my goodness. Yeah, I'm talking about you. Yeah, little just- guy. Does it really still wake up in the middle of the night and stuff? Oh, of course. I thought that only lasted like two months. Oh, if only. Mm-hmm. If oh, only. I, this oh. is why I don't have any of those. <laughs> oh, our little man, he gets he wakes up hungry in the night a couple of times. Wow. A times. He's a grown boy. Are you supposed to feed him when that happens or like make him wait so he gets on a schedule or what? No, no, we're supposed to let him scream in, in hunger. For mm. hours through the darkness. Oh, oh okay. no, no, I, I didn't realize you'd do that if you didn't feed him. <laughs> that I, thought, I thought you'd give up. I thought you'd give up after a couple of minutes. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> they aren't very bright at that age, I've heard. Yeah. Oh, well, good good luck with all that, Jeremy. I guess <laughs> you, uh, c- cue, cue the lullaby. Cue the musication. <laughs> <laughs>